but so today we're going we're gonna to be back in Job, uh, just to frame the context a little bit, back in chapter 18, uh, Bildad described the terrible demise of the wicked, and he implied that Job is wicked and, and the wicked's demise is his demise. He is under God's judgment, and he is, in a sense, headed for hell, is what Bildad preached to poor, suffering Job. But Job, in a strange way, agrees with Bildad, and that's primarily because his life had become a living hell. And so he, he agrees with Bildad, in a sense, in chapter 19, but he also insisted that he doesn't deserve the things that were happening to him and that he believes that in the end God would vindicate him, his Redeemer would vindicate him, right? That's verses 25 through 27 of chapter 19. As Zophar, the third friend, we call him Zophar the Gopher, as Zophar the Gopher listened, he really became infuriated. He was burning with anger, like savage anger against Job, and he unleashes another verbal assault against Job in the next section. Please take your Bibles and turn over to Job chapter 20. Job chapter 20. We're going to look at all 29 verses this morning, Lord willing. This is Zophar's second and final speech. Praise the Lord. I'm glad this is his last speech in the book of Job. Now, we have to hear uh, two more times from the other friends, uh, but this is, this is the end of Zophar. Praise the Lord. We don't have to hear from him anymore. And, and when I say that, I'm not trying to discount the, the Word of God. The Word of God, all of it is entirely profitable. It's all sufficient, right? Even the genealogies we read, there's meaning and, and blessing there for us. But you, we all, I think, could admit at this point that it's kind of tough to read these these speeches from these friends to Job. And maybe it's even more tough to read Job's responses, <laughs> right? It's very repetitious. And so, but we need to remember that, that the whole counsel of God is sufficient. And so, but there's one last speech here from Zophar. Thank you, Jesus. And what he does here is he does something similar to what Bildad did a chapter or two ago. He describes the fate of the wicked in really three ways. And these three ways that he describes the wicked will be our main points. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray before we get to work. Lord, we uh, humble ourselves yet again and thank you for this blessed opportunity that we have to come together corporately to worship you. And just, just quickly, we want to lift up those who are part of our family here that are out sick. And uh, we pray blessing on them and healing on them. And now we pray for ourselves, Lord, help us to, to have ears and eyes and hearts to, to really hear you, to hear your word and, and give us the faith to believe your word and the gumption and, and just the desire to obey and live out your word. And uh, we know that you'll do that for your people, so uh, the majority of us here are your people, I believe, and we just pray that for us, that blessing to us. Those who are here visiting today, we thank you for them, and we pray that you uh, teach and instruct them today as well. We pray that they, they feel the love of this church, the acceptance of this church, and all that. But Lord, we pray most of all that you are glorified during this sermon. Uh, as your word goes out, accomplish all of your purposes that you set forth for it, and uh, transform us and change us to be a little bit more like Jesus. Teach us yet again about the wicked and the fate of the wicked and these things. These are important subjects. 
So we humble ourselves and place ourselves under your tutelage now. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We could pick up where we left off a couple of Sundays ago with our first main point, number one. This is what is expressed through this next section here. The wicked will be disappointed by fading joy. And, and this is really expressed in verses 1 through 11. Now, if you just think about that, the wicked seem to have a type of joy, but what, what Zophar is saying is that it's not going to last. And we pick it up at verse 1. This is what Zophar says, his response to Job. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, here's, here's what he says, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me. And out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. Do you not know, he's speaking directly to Job, do you not know this from old? Since man was placed on earth, here it is, that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. Zophar begins by telling Job that really what he begins with is that he's, he's deeply upset. He's very frustrated, he's, he's very aggravated by Job's assertions that Job will be vindicated, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. You know, again, he, he and the friends think that Job is hiding sin, that Job is a wicked man, and that's why all this calamity came upon him. We were told in chapter 1, that's not at all why this calamity came upon Job. He was not a wicked man, he was a righteous man. And for Job to say that he's innocent and that he will be at some point vindicated by God, which means... God will clear him of all these charges and all this misery and suffering. It's totally offensive to Zophar and the friends because that's not the way religion works in their world. And so he is upset by Job's assertions that he will be vindicated. And he's, he's even more upset that Job asserted that Zophar and the friends are actually liable for judgment. He said this in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 19. That's what Job said of his friends. You think that I'm under judgment? Job says you guys are the ones that are going to be facing judgment. And, and this, is just, this is just ticked off Zophar. He is upset. He is angry. In verses 2 and 3, it was as if he had said, Because you have said these outrageous things, Job, my troubled thoughts prompt me to answer you and, and quickly because I am very disturbed by what you've said. You have insulted me. And I will speak from my understanding as my inner man, my spirit, inclines me to do so. And I think spirit there should be probably rendered as conscience. He's been listening to Job defend himself and indict the friends and, and his inner man, his conscience, can't handle it any longer. I have to say something to you, is what Zophar is telling Job here. And then in verses 4 and 5, Zophar points to a familiar tradition which he says dates back to when, what, man was placed on earth. What does that refer to? The time of Adam and Eve, all the way back to the beginning. So now he's going to give some instruction. He, look, you have ticked me off. You have offended me, Job. And, and now I'm going to have to take you back to the way things work, is what he's saying. That word exalting is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It basically means happiness, mirth, laughter. Okay, so what he's saying is the exalting, the happiness, mirth, and laughter 
of the wicked is what? What does the tradition say? It is short. It won't last. And then he, he adds to that, which is really kind of, he's saying the same thing again, just kind of amplifying it. And the joy of the godless is but for a moment. In other words, the wicked will be disappointed by fading joy. Their exulting will be removed. Their happiness is going to go. Their laughter is going to go. Their joy is going to go, right? It's all fading. It's not going to last. And he's saying that is their fate. That is the fate of the wicked. Now, this is really nothing more than a restatement of Zophar's rewards and retribution theology, the belief that if we do good, God will reward us, but if we do bad, God will seek retribution against us and punish us. Now, there is some truth behind Zophar's theology. I mean, that is the way that it works in a sense in God's economy of things. Good is usually rewarded and bad is usually punished, but that's not always the case, right? Sometimes those who do good, they actually suffer. Sometimes the righteous suffer. Is that not what the book of Job is entirely about? Think of Job. He, he, he breaks the mold here in this, this theology of the three friends, right? Because he hasn't done anything wrong, and yet he, he's a good man, and yet here he is suffering. That doesn't... There's no category for that in these guys' theology. And it's not always the case. I mean, usually good does follow good and bad, bad, but, but that's not always the case. It's, it's entirely not the case with Job. And, and more importantly, that is not the case with Jesus. Jesus did only good. Only righteousness is all he ever did. And how was he treated for that? What happened to him? Did he not suffer unlike anyone else in the history of the world? He suffered in a way that is exponentially greater than anything Job ever encountered, and Job went through some stuff. So, so Zophar's theology is, is, is accurate in a sense, but it's not lock, stock, and barrel. It's not in stone because the righteous, those who do good, do sometimes suffer. And, and certainly the bad, the wicked, certainly prosper, don't they? Do they not prosper? Of course they prosper. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 3, the psalm that, that Dave read that Cameron quoted a little bit there and was given a little backdrop, or not backdrop on that, but contextualizing it for us. The, the wicked do prosper and the righteous do suffer. Boy, that just that's a, a fly in the ointment of these, these men's theology. This is how it works. I mean, it, sometimes the opposite happens. But I would say this, even though Zophar's slightly right but kind of wrong, he is entirely right about the ultimate fate of those who do bad, the wicked, those who reject Jesus, those who despise God. What happens to them? At some point, they're exulting and their joy will be cut off when God judges them, whether it be in this life or at the end of their life. He is 100% correct about that, Zophar is. Now, think of the parallel. Since Job's exulting and his joy were cut short, Zophar assumes that Job is a wicked man and under divine judgment. And when Job declared that God would vindicate him in the future, Zophar points to his tradition and says, Hey, pal, God is not going to vindicate you, Job. 
The only thing he does for wicked, godless people like you is cut off their exulting and their joy. He's not going to do anything positive for you, pal. This is what he's saying here in these first few verses. Now we look at verses 6 through 9. Zophar continues, Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Wow, look at that. That's pretty graphic. Like his own dung. I won't tell you what the equivalent word would be in our day and age for that. He will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? And he will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place anymore uh, behold him. Where he lived will not see him anymore, so to speak. So what Zophar is saying here ultimately is that the wicked are proud and they're going to pay for it. Pride always goes before the fall. God opposes the proud. We know what Scripture says about the proud. And what he's saying here in the ultimate sense is that the wicked are a proud people, right? Their metaphorical height, their self-regarding greatness, it, it climbs up to the heavens, right? That's what he says. His height mount up to the heavens. That's his pride. That's his view of himself. It, it goes as high as the heavens. And he says, and their heads reach to the clouds. Again, pride, pride, pride. I'm reminded of the builders of the Tower of Babel, right? Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. That was all pride behind that operation. All these people figured, we'll just do our own thing and all our pride and glory, and we'll build this tower to the, up, up into the heavens, and we'll have glory and all the praise and honor that comes with it. And then God basically destroyed the whole stinking thing. And his point is that they're, they're very prideful. In fact, their heads are so big, they kind of reach up into the clouds. That's a, that's a big fat head right there, right? But he says, it doesn't matter how successful the wicked may become for a while, it will not last, is what Zophar is saying. It's not going to last. That big balloon head's going to get a pin stuck in it, and it's going to pop. He says, even more graphically, the wicked will become like dung. What happens with Dung. Well, some people like to leave it out. That's pretty disgusting. But for the most part, it either gets buried, it gets burned, or it gets washed away. Right? That's what you're supposed to do with the doo-doo. The wicked will become like doo-doo. They will be buried, they will be burned, they will be washed away, they, they will be rid of, is what he's saying. In other words, they were visible both to the watching eyes of people and to the watchful eye of God, but they will utterly disappear just as dung utterly disappears. Uh, he even goes as far as to say that people will actually look for them, but they will ask, where is he? You get the idea here that there's not even any kind of residue of that person's existence. They've been completely wiped out off the face of the earth. There's no remnant, no residue, no trace that they existed is what he's saying here. That is the fate of the wicked. He says they will, in all this graphic language he uses, they will disappear just as a, a dream flies away in the morning. How many of you have had that happen to you? You're dreaming and then you wake up and then you try to go back to sleep to get the dream back. And then you get another dream and that wakes you up and you're not even going to try again. He's talking about the wicked disappearing like a dream that just sort of flies away in the morning or that uh, like a vision of the night that gets chased away, he says. 
Now, David said something similar in Psalm 37, verse 10. He said, soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. And then a little further down in Psalm 37, in verse 35, David said this, I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil. I'll just stop right there. Maybe it's not the politics that distract us and frustrate us. It's the advancement of evil that frustrates us. That's what frustrates Christians. It's not so much as which political candidate gets into office or doesn't. It's the agenda of Satan being put out and propagated in our culture and community in our nation. That's what I think is so maddening, the sorts of things that, that men want to pass. They want to have men playing in women's sports. I mean, this stuff's just madness. It's madness. And, and that's, that's, that's what gets us, right? It's what David's saying here. I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil. That's what's frustrating to us, but it happens. And then David says, but when I looked again, they were gone. They were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. Zophar is essentially saying the same thing that David said later on. Zophar's words closely echo what Job himself had said of himself back in chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Job said this about himself. He says, The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone as the cloud fades and vanishes nor does his place know him anymore. Job has essentially, in all of his terrible misery, expressed his own soon absence. I'm not even going to be here much longer, I can tell, with the way my life is going. That's what he's saying here. And you know what's happening? Zophar is basically agreeing with him here. He's saying to him, that's right, Job. You will soon fly away and you will be forgotten forever. Why? Because that is the fate of the wicked. He, he basically called Job dung. You ever been called dung? I have. He called him dung and said, you're going to disappear like poop disappears. This is what he says to this guy. This is insane. That's why I'm rejoicing. This is his last speech. Verses 10 and 11. But Job was kind of agreeing with him though, right? In a way, because his life was so bad, he felt like this, these things were actually happening to him. Verses 10 and 11, uh, Zophar continues, he says, His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Now, the meaning of verse 10 is a little perplexing. I think it's a little unclear. Zophar seems to be saying that the children of the wicked man will become destitute to the point of having to beg from the poor, those who basically have nothing. It seems like that's what he's saying. Or the children of the wicked will have to pay back to the poor what their father had stolen from the poor. He's saying either one of those are a strange combination of both. It's a, it's a bizarre point to make to Job. Why? Because his children had been killed. He had no kids right now. So I don't see how this is a good, effective warning to Job. You know, hey, Job, if you have more kids in the future, if you just lost 10 children, the last thing on your mind is having more kids. 
So I don't know where Zophar's coming from here, but he, he wants to get his digs in. But it's like, look, if you have more kids, they're all going to have to give back everything you've stolen from all these people in your community or whatever. I don't understand the, the, his application here, but it couldn't have been good for Job. The point that Zophar is certainly or definitely making is that the wicked will leave behind no lasting legacy. That's the whole idea. That's what he really means. And this is precisely what Bildad talked about in chapter 18. In verse 11 here, Zophar tells Job that the wicked man who is full of youthful vigor, he will die prematurely. Oh, he's going to be all yoked and buffed and, you know, he's going to do crossfit and he's going to have all this stuff going on. He's going to have, you know, chiseled abs instead of an ab like me. He's not going to be flubby. He's going to be buff. But it doesn't matter because he's going to die prematurely. He's going to have all this energy. It's going to go away. It's going to fade. And since he came from the dust, this is an obvious, obvious reference to Genesis 1 with Adam. Since he came from the dust, he's going to do what? He's going to lie down in the dust, is what Zophar is saying. Now, again, parallels here. What did Job say back in chapter 7, verse 21? He himself said, for soon I will lie down in the dust and die. So... Zophar is what? He's basically agreeing with Job. That's right, pal. You will soon die and return to the dust because that is the fate of the wicked. That's what he's saying. Now, keep in mind, Job was not saying it because he was wicked. He was saying it because his life was shot through and he felt like he was going to die and all this stuff. But these guys are convinced that he's saying these things because he's now finally realizing how wicked he is. Not the case at all. But in a sense, Zophar is agreeing with him. You're going to experience exactly what you're talking about, Job, because you're a wicked man. Now we can move to our second point. The wicked will be poisoned by sweet-tasting evil. Sweet-tasting evil. It's like a box of chocolates, right? But they've got raid in them. Uh, verses 12 through 19. He says this, though evil is sweet in his mouth, a wicked person's mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. Wow. Wow. Again, this is poetry, right? This is amazing poetry. Uh, the imagery that Zophar uses is simple and hard-hitting, and the theological point is very powerful in my mind. Uh, and that's that evil tastes sweet, but it poisons those who ingest it. This is a truth that he's saying here. This is backed in, in Proverbs and throughout the Bible. And evil is so deliciously enjoyable that the, the wicked man literally rolls it around in his mouth and he savors its taste, right? Like we might do with a really good piece of German chocolate or something like that. And yet the truth is, what Zophar says, is the delicious taste of evil, that deliciousness of it, it conceals its deadliness, its lethality. It goes down sweet, but will eventually turn the stomach, he says. Why? Because it's not actually chocolate, it's not actually German chocolate or Swiss chocolate, it's not a Hershey's bar, it is actually the venom of cobras, he says. That's his illustration. Pretty, pretty powerful point here. So evil tastes sweet, but it poisons. 
verses 15 and 16, he says this of the wicked man. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. He's like a, he's like a type of bulimic person here. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him, he says. So what Zophar does here is he identifies the, the sweet-tasting evil the wicked man loves to eat, loves to consume. He identifies it as what? Riches. Riches. In context, these are not uh, uh, normally gained riches like you've worked hard and you've saved and you've invested. That's not the type of riches that he's talking about, although those types of riches can be very poisonous. He's talking about riches that are gained unjustly through scams, through fraud, those types of things. So it's a, these are unjust riches. Think of that. The wicked man consumes unjustly acquired riches like I consume ice cream. Seriously, I can put away a pint in a few minutes. But he says of this wealthy man who consumes uh, uh, unjust riches like this, he says, but he will vomit them up. Why? Because God will cast them out of his belly. Now, this is interesting language here. Yes, it's poetry. Yes, it's very graphic, but it's vengeance language is what it is. As in the Lord will repay, right? Romans 12, 19, He will repay whom? Every wicked person. But in this context, especially those who defraud His people, who rip off His people, who scam His people. So the man, the, the wealthy man is, is like, he's, a, he's like Pac-Man here. He just gobbles up all of these unjust riches. But what Zophar's saying is they're not going to last. Like a bulimic person would barf up their food. These riches are going to come back out of him. He's going to lose them. He's not going to be able to hang on to them. I know it's disgusting, but that's the language he's using. Hope he didn't eat breakfast. This is what he's saying here. In verse 16, Zophar likens the consumption of sweet-tasting evil, the accumulation of unjust riches, to sucking the poison of cobras. In other words, it's like playing with deadly snakes. It's like playing with deadly snakes. Now, you need to keep in mind there was no anti-venom in antiquity back in Job's day. If you got bit by a cobra, you died. If you got bit by a viper, you died. Okay, you didn't go somewhere and get a, a fancy shot. You died. The fate of the wicked who consume unjust riches is death. He says it like this, the tongue of a viper will kill him. In other words, God will judge that wicked thief, that wicked swindler. He will judge that wicked swindler and destroy that wicked swindler. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying through his poetry. Verses 17 and 18, continuing about the wicked, he will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. Zophar tells Job that Sweet-tasting evil promises so much and dangles before us a, a land flowing with honey and curds, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey. It kind of promises all of this goodness and this bounty and this satisfaction, but it never truly satisfies us. That's what he's saying. 
Just as poison is vomited up, so the fruit of the wicked man's toil is sure to be given back. In other words, he cannot swallow it down. He cannot keep it down. He, he trades unjustly and makes big profits, but he will get no enjoyment from his riches. That is what Zophar is saying. Verse 19, For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build Zophar gives Job the reason why the wicked man will not enjoy his unjust riches. He has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized properties he did not build, right, in order to get all of these riches. He's basically scammed and ripped off the rich and even taken homes and properties. I'm reminded of the Pharisees that Jesus had to deal with. They would take a widow's home away from her. These guys were the most despicable guys in Jesus' day. They were absolutely horrible. What Zophar is in effect saying is that these riches that are acquired this way by the wicked, they're not going to be enjoyed for long because God is just. He will not let the wicked get away with their swindling. He's not going to let it stick. They're not going to be able to enjoy what they've taken. Now think of the parallels here. Job was previously a wealthy man, right? He was the greatest of all the people of the East. Chapter 1, verse 3. Of course, his friends assumed that he had lost his riches because he was a wicked fraudster, from, uh, a, a wicked fraudster whom God was now judging. Now, you've got to listen to this. This is incredible. <clears throat> we're going to step away from Job for a little while, so we're not going to see this in the next week or two, but this is incredible what Eliphaz says against Job in chapter 22, verses 5 through 9. These men, especially Eliphaz, literally believed that Job had gotten all that wealth by scamming and ripping people off. It's amazing to me because I think in chapter 4, Eliphaz says, you've done all these great things for people. He gives a list of all these wonderful things, Job. And now, toward the middle of the book, he's saying the exact opposite. But listen to what he says here in 22 verses 5 through 9. He's saying this to Job. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man, owning land, an honored man, living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke, uh, and you broke the strength of the fatherless." Rachel and I were talking about this in the car yesterday or the day before, and we were talking about how he commended Job early on in the book, and now he says these things about Job. Where was he getting his information? I mean, did somebody show up and say, hey, you have no idea what Job's been up to behind your backs? Would you trust the, the, the testimony of that person? I mean, Job is called in chapter 1 a righteous, blameless man. If he had done these things that Eliphaz accuses him of, he would not be called a righteous, blameless man. And, and I'm just mind-blown here. It's like, where is this stuff? How did you come up with this? Have you been reading mainstream media? You're getting, is, your, is your news source fake news? Where are you getting this stuff, Eliphaz? I mean, these are, these are real indictments against this guy. And it's like, where is, I guess you just make it up as you go. It's amazing to me, but they are convinced that he's a thief. 
and he has scammed all these people, and now God is punishing him for it. It's, it's really insane to me, these assumptions they make. It's amazing how assumptions can lead us to draw wrong conclusions about scenarios and people. You know what's one of the worst things in the world is a lack of communication, because if you don't have communication with someone, all you have is assumption. And then you start drawing out conclusions, and sometimes those conclusions aren't accurate, are they? And, and, and that's what's happened here. And we do this ourselves, and it's tragic. We're Christians. We're to be people about the truth and about what is truthful around us. We only take action based on what we truly know and understand, not on assumption. Assumptions are lethal, and that's what's happening here. They've now painted this guy as, as the worst possible thief of that era. And it's like it's not even true of him. Now we can move to our third and final point. The wicked will be overwhelmed by inescapable wrath, verses 20 through 28. That was one of Bildad's big points in chapter 18. Uh, we'll pick it up at 20 through 23. Speaking of the wicked man again, because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and, it, and rain it upon him into his body. Zophar describes the wicked man's insatiable appetite for riches. He knows no contentment in his belly, he says. He can never, ever, ever get enough, is what he's saying. And that's why he says he will not let anything he delights in escape him. Whatever it is that he sees and that he wants, he is going to get it. If it's your wife and he wants your wife, he's going to figure out how to get her. That's how this guy thinks. That's how this wicked thief thinks. He is never content. He's never satisfied with the riches that he gets. He is always coveting. He is always grasping after more. He is like Pac-Man, that famous 80s game. He may devour resources until there's absolutely nothing left, but his prosperity will not endure. He will, in a sense, run out of things to acquire. He will be uh, like the great uh, Greek emperor who ran out of worlds to conquer. He's just not going to ever be satisfied with anything. He will never, ever, ever get enough. Now, this is the wicked man we're speaking of here, and I'll tell you what. We need to be careful here with riches because there's a great many Christians that fall into these traps. They behave and act like wicked people trying to amass, trying to amass, rather than using their stuff and leveraging their resource for the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do. But in any case, he's speaking of the wicked here. He even says to the effect that the wicked will become bloated. He may become bloated with riches, right? Fattened with riches. But in the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress, Meaning kind of like at the pinnacle of his wealth, he's going to be in stress. He's going to be in duress or in distress. Why? There's really two reasons that are given here. First, distress will come when everyone in misery comes against him. Who are these people that Zophar is talking about? They're the people that this scumbag defrauded. They're going to come after him. At some point, they're going to be like, okay, we can't do this any longer. He's ripped us all off. Let's go deal with him. 
They're not going to sit back and let this continue to happen. They will come for him. Now, this is a crazy point. Um, we studied James not too long ago, but this actually happened in the church that James wrote to. You know, the little book toward the back of the Bible written by uh, Jesus' half-brother James. Wicked people in that community had defrauded some of the poor church members. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 of James. Guess what? The poor church members got angry and wanted to go and kill them. Christians wanted to go and kill these people for doing this. James chapter 1, verse 19. James chapter 4, verse 2. So the very thing that Zophar says will happen to the wicked almost happened in the book of James in a church. Second, the second thing that will bring them distress is distress will come when God comes against the wicked man in judgment. I mean, that's the one to be more terrified from. He will, what, send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. Riches will never fill the wicked man's belly, never truly satisfy him. And, and Zophar says, in the end, God is going to replace those riches with something else. Fury, fire, judgment. This is what he's saying. We could just call it, your riches are getting taken away, so I can give you fiery judgment. That's what the text is saying. And if you just stop and think about the connections or parallels with Job, did Job not have, right, we're talking about God judging the man's physical body here in a sense. Did Job not have physical ailments? Yeah, he did. He had all kinds of health issues. I mean, he was perfectly healthy until, until that one day. And his flesh became covered with painful sores, chapter 2, verse 7. He had severe insomnia. I mean, I get upset when I can't sleep one night. This guy didn't sleep any nights. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He lost his appetite because his stomach was perpetually sick. Chapter 3, verse 24. He had massive anxiety. Anxiety on top of anxiety. If you've ever had an anxiety attack, he lived with it. Chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. The anxiety stuff's no joke. What is Zophar doing here? He is connecting Job's terrible physical condition to the judgment of God, which he says always, always, always comes against the wicked man, especially against his own physical body. That's what Zophar is saying. He's connecting it to Job, undoubtedly. You're all tore up, Job, because you're a wicked man who swindled the poor. That's what he's saying. Verses 24 and 25. Continuing on the wicked man, he will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. It's poetry. doesn't seem to make much sense here. Let me break it down. Zophar uses, I would say, incredible imagery here to tell Job that the wicked will be overwhelmed by inescapable wrath. That's our main point. The wicked man will try to flee from God's arsenal, from God's iron weapon, but he won't get far because God will draw back his bow and send a bronze arrow right through him. Is he literally going to shoot the wicked man with a bronze arrow? No, he's just talking about his judgment coming against him, but he's using combat terminology. 
And this, this bronze arrow is going to strike the wicked man in his upper torso. It's going to pierce his gallbladder, and the glittering bronze point will come out the other side of his body, right? This is what he's saying here. What's going to happen? The wicked man is going to get struck by God. He's going to fall to the ground in absolute terror, Zophar says. Why? Because he will suddenly realize that death, judgment, and hell are imminent. This is what he's saying. He's not going to escape God. God is going to take him out. Verses 26 and through 28, continuing on the wicked man theme, utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. This is hell language, by the way. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. Zophar tells Job that the destiny for the wicked man and his ill-gotten treasures is utter darkness, where a fire that comes from the wrath of God, a fire so hot that it does not need to be fanned, it's going to devour him. And all that he has, everything that he has left in his tent, in his life, is going to be consumed. This, this is hell. This is what he's talking about. After he is shot through the gallbladder and killed by God, after he is judged and killed and destroyed by God, he will be cast into outer darkness where this fire that does not need to be fanned will be present and it will lick up all his resources and torment him forever and ever and ever. This is exactly what Zophar is saying and this is precisely what Bildad said in chapter 18, something very similar to this. He goes on to say his iniquities, those are his sins, his transgressions, they are essentially being recorded in heaven and on the day of God's wrath, heaven will reveal them. And he even says the earth will rise up against him as well. Maybe it'll open up and swallow him like it did the sons of Korah, right? Deuteronomy 11, verse 6. All his possessions, he says lastly here, all his possessions will be carried away and dragged off. Everything that he acquired in life, even the things the wicked man acquired legally will be carried, carried off, not just the things that he stole from others. He will lose everything. You know, we talked in chapter 18 about hell being the place of total disillusion. Disillusion means um, the removal of all things, all loved ones, all things held cherish, all possessions, everything that we cherish, everything that we love, everything that we value in hell, they're all taken away. They're all removed. And that's what he's saying here. Zophar is really following Bildad's lead in chapter 18, and he is warning Job about hell. It is the place of utter darkness and even outer darkness. It is the place of devouring fire. It is the place of total disillusion where the wicked lose everything. And I think he doesn't say it here, which is a little troubling, but I think his point to Job is that it's really this. Job, if you do not repent of your hidden sin, if you do not stop this charade, this game, if you do not stop attacking our religion because it's the true religion, if you don't stop these stupid, idiotic things that you're doing, 
man, you are, you think that you're in hell now in life, you are going to be in the real literal hell. You're going to go to Sheol. You're going to go there and you're going to suffer this utter darkness and these devouring flames. You're going to experience it in a way that you can't imagine. I think that's what he's trying to convey to Job. But he never actually says to Job that he ought to repent, which is troubling. I think like Bildad, he kind of wants Job at this point to go ahead and go to hell. He's so tired of him and so fed up with him. It's like, I wish you'd just go to hell. He's probably told him, why don't you go to hell, Job? That's how he feels. What a friend, huh? With friends like this, who needs enemies? Last verse, verse 29. He says, this is a a great statement. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed uh, for him by God. Uh, Really, what Zophar does is he takes everything he said up to verse 28 or verse 29 here, and he really summarizes it all. What he has described to Job uh, the, is literally the wicked man's portion from God. In other words, that's this, what he's describing here is precisely what wicked people get. It is the heritage decreed for the wicked by God. They will receive everything that is, that is stated here by Zophar. Zophar was entirely correct about the wicked. Wrath and hell is the wicked man's portion from God. That's what he will get. But Zophar was entirely wrong about Job. Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. Chapter 1, verse 1, we, may, we must never forget that verse. That sets the tone for everything. It just goes to show how wrong these friends were. It says in chapter 1, verses 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3, that there was no one like Job on earth. No one like him. In other words, he was the the godliest man alive in his day. His his godliness uh, surpassed that of these friends exponentially. So what he's saying about the wicked and hell is true, but what he's saying about Job is terribly, terribly wrong, terribly inaccurate. Closing. (laughs) Actually, a great question to ask. You know, what can we take away from yet another text on the wicked, on wrath, on hell, right? I mean, if, we, if you study the book of Job, you, you get a bunch of speeches that deal with this subject. What can we take away from it? Well, first of all, it's, it's the ultimate warning against the wicked. Wicked man, you will perish like your own dung. You need Jesus. It's the only way to avoid it. I mean, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. But really, I have two things here. What can we take away from another text on these subjects? First, and we've been pointing to this a little bit over the weeks, but first, the text reminds us of what Christ endured for us. Christ was treated as a wicked man, like Job. But the difference is that Christ was truly innocent. I mean, Job was a sinner saved by grace. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was not saved by grace. Jesus was perfect. And he was treated as a wicked man. The righteous man that Christ is, he was made sin for us. He was treated as a wicked man. Uh, he even endured losses. I mean, what, what do we see in the text? The wicked man will suffer disillusion. Well, Jesus suffered some disillusion, did he not? He had losses. 
He lost his freedom when he was arrested at Gethsemane, right? John 18, 2, or 12. And they came and arrested him. Remember that? He was betrayed with a kiss, and then those soldiers arrested him. He lost his freedom. He did that for us. Even more painfully, he lost his fellowship with the Father while hanging on the cross as a cursed man, as the bearer of our sins. What did he cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 talks about anyone hung on a tree is cursed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Matthew 27, 46, uh, they, they deal with him deal with him in that context. He lost fellowship with the Father as he took our sins upon himself. He lost his life. He paid the ultimate price when he died on the cross, Luke 23, 46, right? What am I telling you? I'm telling you that Christ was treated as a wicked man, and we see that fact in he had losses. He suffered losses. These things will be taken away from the wicked. God took things away from Christ as Christ was treated as a wicked man in our place. You see the connection? Not only that, but Christ was treated as a wicked man and he endured wrath. Right? This whole text that we've been reading and studying talks about the wrath of God coming against the wicked. Who suffered wrath on the cross? Who was treated as a wicked man? Jesus. He endured, not only that, He endured the wrath of man when He was struck across the face, John 18, verse 22, when He was mocked, Matthew 27, verse 29, when He was flogged, that means whipped and beaten with a cat of nine tails, John 19, verse 1, uh, he, was, he, endured wrath by, by, he endured wrath by men when He was crucified as a common criminal, Matthew 27, verse 38. What was he? He was crucified between what? Two common criminals, two thieves. He suffered the wrath of man, but worse, he endured the wrath of God on the cross. Isaiah 53, that entire chapter in Isaiah is about what Christ suffered on the cross. It projects what he would suffer. And then when Christ went to the cross, he suffered everything that Isaiah listed. He suffered the wrath of God. Uh, he drank the cup that no one else could drink, even though his disciples said, hey, we'll take a sip, morons. No, you won't. You won't drink the You cannot. He told them. They said, we want to we we follow along with you all the way till the end. He said, you're not going to be able to drink the cup that I drink. Why? Because the cup that he drank is the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Mark 10, verse 38. Luke 22, verse 42. What did he say? If it's possible, Father, take this cup from me in a moment of weakness in the garden. Why? Because he was a man and he knew what he was facing. And yet he took that cup of God's wrath and he drank it down to the dregs. He emptied it, slammed it on the ground. He was treated as a wicked man and he endured the wrath of men and the wrath of God for us. Christ was treated as a wicked man, and He suffered hellish torment. He did this just prior to the cross as He was beaten and tortured, and obviously on the cross as He bore the terrifying wrath of God. 
He even descended into hell during his burial, not to suffer additional torment, not to redeem those who are in hell. They can't be redeemed. Why? To proclaim a message of victory to incarcerated spirits, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. What do we say? Christ went through hell for us. You see, the wicked experience wrath and hell because they are wicked and God is just. Christ experienced wrath and hell because He is righteous and it was necessary for our salvation. He endured God's wrath and hell on our behalf in our place as our vicarious substitute. Romans 5, 6. So that's the first thing that we can learn from yet another text on the wicked wrath and hell. We can draw parallels out of it right to Christ who endured these things in our place so that Dustin doesn't go to hell. So that I don't go there. He did that for us. Is the text not valuable? Is it? It's valuable. And it's valuable because of the second reason. Secondly, the text helps to shape our expectations of what the Christian life will be like on this side of the second advent, the return of Christ. It literally helps to shape our understanding of what it will be like to be a Christian prior to glory. There will be times when our exalting is cut short by grief and our joy fades because of suffering. That is the fate of the wicked and there will be times where we feel like wicked people. Even though we're righteous, we're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, but we will experience the same phenomenon as them as, as grief and difficulty in life cut short our happiness makes our, our joy fade. And some people say, hey, you know the difference between happiness and joy? Joy doesn't fade. Tell that to Job! What a foolish thing to say. Job was a, a godly man. Would you say he was joyful? No. He wasn't joyful. There were you know, spurts of joy when he put his eyes back on God when he remembered that he has a redeemer, but, but in between it's just all terror and, and suffering and sadness and sorrow and pain. You, this text reminds us that like the wicked, even though we're not wicked, but like the wicked, our exulting, our mirth, our happiness, our laughter will be turned to sorrow. Our joy will be under attack. The text reminds us of that. There will be times also when we are poisoned by the fruits of the wickedness of others. Sometimes it's Christians that do this poisoning. Shame on us. There will be times when we are poisoned by the poisonous fruits of the, of the wickedness of others, including the people of God at times when they just get stupid. 
I think that we're headed into four years of some pretty good poisoning. Yeah. And there will be times when we feel like we are under the inescapable judgment of God, even though we are righteous, even though we are blameless. Do we not understand what it says in, in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, actually 17 through 19, where it talks about how the world is under God's judgment? Do you think that we're not going to feel the effects of that as we try to follow Christ here? That we're not going to feel the effects of God's wrath and judgment against this world? We will feel it. We will feel it. And there's going to be times where we feel like, why are you judging me so harshly, God, when in fact he's not judging us at all? Is that not the book of Job? Is that not Job's life? There will be times when you as a Christian will feel like God, is, his wrath is against you. And it's not. It's not. There's a divine purpose in these things. Our own growth, our own development, no matter how painful they may be, but... There's going to be times, I mean, what's one of the first things that we say when we start going through difficulty? God, why are you doing this to me? Is that not something that we say? I've said it. I guess it depends on the level of the tragedy. The really, really hard things, we tend to blame God for those things. There will be times when we will feel like we are under the inescapable judgment of God, even though we are blameless as Job was blameless. Did not Job, who was a saint, feel this phenomenon? Did he not experience it? Of course he did. Of course he did. I want to ask you a question because we're really wrapping up here. <laughs> we're supposed to, but sometimes I preach a second sermon in the closing remarks. My friend Carl that used to attend here, he said, that's your only sermon you preached. <laughs> Never mind the 50 minutes beforehand. Um, let me ask you this question. I'm going to float this question to you. How do disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ enter the kingdom of God? I said disciples. I didn't say how do people enter the kingdom. We know that's through being born again. John 3, how do disciples enter Disciples of Jesus enter the kingdom of God. How do they do it? Guess what? Maybe you didn't know this. They do it the same way Job did it, through many tribulations. Acts 14, 22. What a handy little verse. Through many tribulations. And this is precisely why we must not be surprised or consider it a strange thing when we go through fiery trials. That's not me. That's 1 Peter 4, 12. Don't be surprised. Texts on wrath and hell remind us of what Christ endured for us and of what we must endure for Him. Do I need to repeat that? Texts on wrath and hell remind us of what Christ endured for us on our behalf, and they remind us of what we must endure for Him. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that the cost of discipleship is great. It's great. It is truly death to self. Death to self. It is bearing your own cross. It is the forsakement 
of any and all, if necessary, for Christ. The cost of discipleship is great, but I, I am convinced after being a Christian for almost about 20 years now, it is totally worth it being loved and accepted by Christ is the most satisfying thing we will ever experience this side of glory. And following Christ is by far the most exciting journey. May we bask, may we exult in His all-satisfying love and press on toward the celestial city. That's our true home, not here. May we do that together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how there are such clear warnings in there to the wicked and clear reminders there to us. We've been reminded once again of what Christ did on our behalf, that he was treated as a wicked person and suffered loss and, and suffered wrath and suffered really the torments of hell in a sense, and He did these things for us so that I would not have to go through those things. Thank You for what Christ has done for us. We've been reminded of how difficult the Christian life will be. We live in a world that is under Your wrath. It is fallen. Uh, we will experience and taste some of the very things that the wicked uh, will have to deal with, and it's not because we are wicked. It's because of the the circumstances and the situation in which we live. It's our context. But we know, we know that you are on our side, that you have our best interest in mind, that you are sanctifying us through all this travail, all the terrible things that we go through, that there is a divine purpose behind suffering, and it is sanctification, making and shaping and molding us to be more like Christ. There is no way to become like the suffering servant Christ without suffering. So we rejoice. Lord, help to guard our minds as we have to endure suffering and go through difficulty. Help us not to make some of the mistakes that Job made where he indicted you. We need to remember that, that you love us. Nothing will ever separate us from your love. We need to go back to Romans 8, the end of it, and read it over and over. It's not by your hand. There's other things and other factors, but you do allow these things to transpire, and it is for our good and your glory. May we accept these things as such. Help to keep our joy high. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May we sing to you with all our might, and we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.